Welcome to the Naturally Nourished Podcast that delivers cutting-edge food as medicine solutions for optimal health. Allie Miller is a nutrition expert sought up by the media and America's top medical institutes for her revolutionary functional medicine interventions. From disease treatment to prevention, every episode will empower you with ways to put yourself back in control of your health. Please note, the topics discussed are for educational purposes only. Now welcome, Integrative Dietitians Allie Miller and her co-host Becky Yu. Welcome to the Naturally Nourished Podcast. You are joining us for episode 211, Metabolic, Immune, and Cellular Health with Mike Mutzel, aka Metabolic Mike. We are going to be covering so much ground in today's episode, so make sure you grab your pen and paper at least for the second half when we get really geeky, but we're going to open up with navigating the science and the research in this pandemic and really going beyond the headlines. We're going to talk about considering lifestyle factors of immune health and questioning mandates that may hinder and then living in facts versus fear. And then in the second half of the episode, we're gonna transition into topics like intermittent fasting, the ketogenic diet, metabolic flexibility, cold plunges, epigenetic influence on aging, and so much more. Yes, hold tight. This is gonna be a fun and jam-packed episode. Before we go into it, let's just have a quick word from our sponsor for this episode, Fond Bone Broth. Yes. So y'all know that Becky and I are quite obsessed with bone broth for the benefits of collagen and gelatin to be that facelift for the gut, if you will, as well as support connective tissue. You know, we're also all about that L-glutamine and glycine for further gut support, reducing food sensitivity and glycine being a mellow router factor. Well, never did bone broth taste as good as fond bone broth. We are super happy to share that when you go on over to their website, which is fondbonebroth.com and you use the code AllieMillerRD at checkout, you will save on your order of bone broth, which is wellness well made. Fond takes functional ingredient integrity and they hand pick synergistic ingredients to make flavors that are delicious, but also optimize nutrient density from turmeric and cracked pepper to beets and poblano peppers. Their goal is to not just make something that's good for you, but something that nourishes and delights. And boy, does it. I'm telling you, I've converted clients that have been only team collagen gelatin and not about that hot meat juice life that are loving sipping on fond bone broth. They are really like an elixir in a mug. And I'm so excited about the seasonal one with the butternut squash and the chipotle pepper. Really fantastic. Tastes like Thanksgiving in a mug. (laughs) And it's helping me combat the heat that we still have here in Austin, Texas. Uh, So go on over to fondbonebroth.com. Use the code AllieMillerRD to save. And you can experience your sous chef in a jar, which can take your flavor profile of boring sautéed vegetables to the next level and a fantastic sipping elixir that can provide you all of the food as medicine benefits of bone broth and more. Yes, I'm totally stocking up for postpartum and have my jars ready to go. All right, I'll go ahead and read Mike's bio and then we'll get him on the show. 
Mike earned his Bachelor of Science in Biology from Western Washington University in 2006 and completed his MS in Clinical Nutrition from the University of Bridgeport, like me, in 2015, and is a graduate of the Institute for Functional Medicine, IFM's Applying Functional Medicine in Clinical Practice. In April of 2014, Mike published his first book, Belly Fat Effect, the real secret about how your diet, intestinal health, and gut bacteria help you to burn fat. Mike regularly conducts workshops for healthcare practitioners teaching leading-edge science in a concise format that can be utilized by progressive clinicians for the prevention of chronic disease. Often termed translational medicine, this bench-to-bedside approach is key to ensure the application of pioneering research and concepts in systems biology, a preventative healthcare setting, optimizing patient outcomes. Mike lives in Kirkland, Washington with his wife, Deanna, a doctor of chiropractic, their daughter and two dogs, Shasta and Rainier, as well as pigs, chickens, and all sorts of homestead activity that we're totally going to get into in today's episode. Yes. So I am super excited to bring on Mike in a moment. Uh, he and Becky and I first connected at KetoCon a couple years back in a VIP mixer. And I had the pleasure of going out to his home to record a podcast on his show, High Intensity Health, uh, last fall in 2019 when I was out at Bastyr University for my book tour. So it was super cool meeting him. Um, I really enjoy his approach and feel that he's really a true expert in disseminating dense scientific literature into delightful memes, which keep me cracking up and have helped me to survive the insanity at times during the pandemic. And he really also disseminates dense information into user-friendly application. And I think he's just such a genuine, awesome person. This was a great conversation. And let's welcome on our friend, Mike. Welcome, Mike, to the Naturally Nourished podcast. We are super excited about today's conversation. We have a lot of ground to cover, but before we get into some of the <laughs> delightful impact of unpacking cognitive dissonance in all things within the last six months, um, I want to give you the opportunity to tell our listeners who you are, what you do, and what got you passionate about nutrition and metabolic health. Amazing. Well, first of all, thanks so much for having me on. It's great to be with you guys, gals, and uh, to talk about all these interesting things that are occurring in the world. But, you know, I, I think like you and probably so many other people that are interested in this, what some people deem alternative medicine or functional medicine space is um, having a health issue that was not resolved through the mainstream uh, medical uh, you know, system and realizing that there's other avenues to be healthy. And so um, through, through a, a bunch of different kind of failures uh, with the medical system, I, I found functional medicine and, and those failures involved me overtraining in college and my testosterone dropped. Total testosterone was 92. Free testosterone was almost undetectable and I got depressed, uh, lethargic, had you know, um, no energy, lost lean muscle mass. And it was simply because I, I was really excited about becoming a professional cyclist. I was on the cycling team my last year of college. And um, I, I was like, what's wrong with me? I, I've heard of overtraining back then, but you know, I was just busy, you know, burning the candle at both ends training and, and, uh, you know, studying as a undergraduate pre-med in biology. 
and went to a doctor and they said, oh, you just need an SSRI, an antidepressant. I'm like, well, I've never been depressed before. Like, I think there's probably... I don't know that that's it. And it's like, well, we'll send you on to a specialist. You need to see an endocrinologist and, and, and that really big, awesome, you know, uh, established uh, endocrinology clinic in Seattle I went to and it was like, oh yeah, here's, you just need to get on testosterone. And it's like, I don't know if that, you know, anyway, so I, I figured out quickly that there's all this medical research and there's pro- these well-intended uh, doctors out there that are practicing and following the the you know standard of care who are are not connected with what's going on in the research and because they're so busy with other things where they haven't been trained and so on and so that's what landed me and and I started to learn more about functional medicine went to a lot of courses and seminars back in 2006 and did this AFMCP thing and all that so that's how I got into this this field and it's really interesting people that haven't had any uh, failures, so to speak, or health challenges that haven't been resolved from mainstream medicine generally tend to think that that's the only solution out there for them. So I, I think it's a common theme amongst people that listen to our our content and so forth is they, they, they learn the hard way that, gosh, diet really does matter. Your lifestyle, your stress management, like your mindset, all that stuff matters. And so, um, yeah, I, I'm thankful for these failures because had I not had a health issue back in, in college, I, I probably would still believe that, you know, we all need to get the flu shot to be healthy and do these different things. But we know that there's so much to the story. Most definitely. And I, I always delightfully call my clients often zebras because we just don't always fit within the lines of the algorithms. <laughs> and, right. and that's okay. You know, we are, we're these complex webs for sure. Uh, love it. Love it. Um, let's talk a little bit about what's been going on the last six months. Um, I have really enjoyed watching you share your truth. And uh, I think even pre-pandemic, Mike, you know, we've rode the waves of the calories in, calories out crowd and a lot of the the doctrine, uh, which is accepted as mainstream truth. Um, But really, I thought in the light, in the time of pandemic, um, I've enjoyed you sharing via meme (laughs) your frustrations of public policy and pandemic management. And it took me a while, uh, really until March to really feel confident about speaking out my truth. And it was helpful watching, you know, you, Ben Lynch, Dr. Christian Northrup, Paul Saladino, we've had them all on the podcast. And I just want to say first off to, to lay the tone that we both are so grateful for you speaking out in such a time of shadow banning and filtering of truth, because I know it's a, it's a something that we have to all consider and it can impact our households. It can impact our financial situations, our credibility and, and so much more. Um, so we're grateful for you and your courage. Um, oh, and, <laughs> uh, I want to hear a little bit about just over the last six months. Um, now that we're, you know, in the heading into the fall, um, where you think that we can make favorable health supporting shifts for our immune system and, um, some of your favorite tips or interventions for regulating immune and metabolic health. I know it's a very loaded question, but just, just kind yeah. of entering in, um, what are the things that still aren't being discussed that people need to hear that we need to share with the masses? That's a, um, an amazing question. And, and just to kind of lay the groundwork, because if someone just looks at my recent posts, they're going to think, oh my gosh, this guy's a science denier. Uh, he doesn't believe the virus is real. I, I absolutely believe the virus is real. Um, you know, in February, I, 
I was super concerned about it because we didn't know much about, you know, um, the transmission of this and who's susceptible, who's not, you know, um, I had a hernia procedure. So I flew to Canada and my daughter and I both wore masks on the airplane because I was like, look, I'm going to go get this surgery. Last thing I need is to get infected with some unknown respiratory virus for which we don't, you know, have any treatments for. So I took things super seriously. Uh, and then I started to dive into the research that was emerging from Wuhan in March. And I quickly realized that not everyone is has the same susceptibility to this virus. And, and even back then, we saw the comorbidities, the diabetes, the hypertension, the obesity was strongly linked with increased need for all sorts of medicalization, corticosteroids, antibiotics, I mean, you name it. So it was really obvious to me that it's that this thing is uh, really more of an issue in terms of disease severity for people who aren't taking their he- or haven't taken their health seriously. And that's why I, I got critical of, you know, the public health measures that were being forced onto all of us, closing gyms, uh, restricting access to parks and playgrounds and, and, and you know, discouraging people from going outside. And I quickly thought that this doesn't make any sense because we know that's the best thing. You know, one, of, one of the strategies we'll talk about is exercise and getting fresh air and vitamin D and play and just you know being able to, to move. I mean, all of those things are wonderful for our, for our body. So that's why I've become kind of cynical about this because if this is you know, it's kind of ostensibly positioned as, as like we were doing all these things to improve health, yet all we're doing is maybe, maybe slowing down the transmission, but slowing down the transmission of a transmissible respiratory virus, all of these things, measures that we're doing, that, that's not improving our health. And so that's why I've been critical about this because, you know, gyms are closed, but yeah, McDonald's remains open, Dunkin' Donuts and, and all that. So um, with, with that being said, um, you know, well, I think, f- I think, Mike, what's interesting to note is, like you said, we're not improving people's health, but I think we could even take it a step further that these mandates are actually impairing people's health. Yeah. I agree with you 100%. I mean, I was very skeptical about the lockdowns um, because, again, we had data from Wuhan initially and um, you know, trapping people in their homes, causing them to, to reduce their income. Uh, I mean, you know, we, we've myopically focused on on the virus as the only public health issue. But then when you take away someone's job, when you take away social connections, when you take away their source of income, i.e. cause them to be unemployed, you create more unintended consequences. And so we, we really um, didn't think things through. And, 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 and we're still seeing the ramifications of that social unrest. I think a lot of the, the rioting and the protesting and the looting that we're seeing is partially you know, you had a lot of people pent up in their home, frustrated. You took away their source of income. You took away their social connection, and and boom, you you have this perfect storm for for social unrest. So obviously, there's there's issues with race and, and things like that. They're very valid and justifiable. But you know, I think the pendulum has swung in a a little bit too far in that regard. But uh, you know, I, I agree with you. We we here's the problem. If we can just summarize what's going on is when people seemingly become scared they own their vision kind of becomes more more myopic and more narrow and they're unable to see the the unintended consequences of their behavior uh and so for example locking everyone in their homes, the side effect of that is increasing obesity, uh, dysregulated glucose uh, metabolism, because you're staying inside, you're not getting vitamin D, you're not exercising, you're not getting fresh air. Um, Your sleep-wake cycles are going to be imbalanced because you're probably under artificial light, consuming more screen time. So 
there's a ton of unintended consequences. And we didn't think this through, especially considering the fact that, you know, the comorbidities that are created that are increased, I should say. And there's been several studies that have looked at this. What is the the unintended consequences and, and, and scientists have looked at past pandemics and looked at other situations where there was a, a tsunami in different parts of Asia or South America, for example, where there was natural disasters in the Caribbean. And people have looked at how that increased the incidence of diabetes after these natural disasters. And there was like a statistically significant increase in worsening of hemoglobin A1C, for example. And so scientists and statisticians have looked at this and then looked at that history and applied that, those models and mathematical expectations to what we've done here in the U.S. and presumably throughout the world outside of certain countries like Sweden and so forth. But yeah, we, we've worsened the very conditions that make us more vulnerable uh, to to having severe infectious disease uh, outcomes and and making us more of a vulnerable sitting duck. So it's unfortunate though that people don't hear this message. You know, when you say this, you get relegated to be put in in this grandma killer insensitive Trump supporting category. And and all we're doing here is just saying, hey, look, you know, there's multiple public health issues, and if you look at why the U.S. is seemingly disproportionately worse than other countries throughout the world. We have, we have a few things going on that a lot of people haven't really talked about. This whole hygiene hypothesis, and I know, Ali, you know all about this, and this idea that over-sanitization, antibiotic use, especially early in life, lack of vaginal delivery, lack of breastfeeding, all of these things have created an immune system that is seemingly just intolerant of its environment. So then we have allergies, we have atopy, skin issues, we have food sensitivities. Well, what happens when now we're washing our hands 17 times a day, we're spraying Lysol and bleach all over the place, we're, we're, we're covering our face so we're not getting microbes from the air, uh, we're exacerbating this, this already, uh, you know, this, already, this condition of this high, uh, excessive hygiene. And so we're making our immune systems, in my estimations, uh, and researchers have talked about this. And if you look at if you look at countries like Africa um, and, and the prevalence of the virus, yet the, there's the, the mortality is much, much lower compared to, say, the United States. And it's like, well, why is that? It's not access to healthcare. You know, it's not like these people right. are getting better healthcare. It's that they're, they live a, a dirtier lifestyle, right? They're, 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 you know, their immune system is constantly cross-talking with their environment. They're not cleaning their hands 17 million times a day. You know, they're, they're doing things to enhance your body's immune system and by way of education uh, from the environment. And so I really worry about the children now who are wearing face masks, their parents are not letting them go outside because outside, of course, is very scary. They're, they need to wash their hands. They're not playing with friends. Uh, even the newborn babies, you know, you see a lot of people that have had newborns recently and then there's like a family picture, like, welcome, you know, Susie to the family. And everyone has a face mask or a face right. shield. You're like, that newborn depends on, you know, hanging out with grandma, touching grandpa, touching the in-laws, like, you know, moving around, like all those microbes from just a little baby moving around, those microbes are educating that newborn's immune system so that later in life, it's not going to attack its own thyroid, like, the, the, you know, and cause right. Hashimoto's. So, yeah, it's... 
gosh, we could go on and on. In orphanages, you know, that's an interesting connection when children aren't touched. You know, even just the the disconnection and the what it's what twenty one expressions that are made in the the mouth that now are hidden uh, for nonverbal communication. And, and you think in just even infancy, the reassuring and the um, emotional empathy that's connected with smile. Uh, it's extremely concerning, I'd say, for sure. It is. And, you know, the, the unfortunate reality here is it, it, this is very political, of, of course. I mean, everyone, I, I think most people kind of realize that now. But if you, if you look at Canada, um, a friend of mine was in, was in Whistler and Vancouver last week. And I was like, hey, you know, can you, which by the way, is like 100 miles away from where I live right now, right? So it's not like this virus you know, hasn't gone to Canada. It's in Canada. They've had deaths. They've had cases, right? But people are walking in the street with no face masks on. She was in Whistler. A bunch of people of all different types of ethnicities and genders and everything walking in close proximity to each other in the street with no face mask. And there was actually a, a viral videos of this beach in, in Vancouver called Third Beach. It's an amazing beach. If anyone goes to, to Stanley Park in Vancouver during the summer when Americans are allowed to go up there, it's um, amazing. All these kids, are, they're playing drums, they're playing volleyball. They're, there's no masks, nothing, and they have no cases. And it's not like the virus didn't get seeded there. There's a, a very dense... Chinese population in Vancouver, British Columbia, and they had flights coming in from China all the time. Uh, so there's a lot, you know, the virus was seeded, but you know, what we're seeing here is, is people are so scared and they've, they've really drank the Kool-Aid from the media and, and so forth. And, you know, if you look at the state of California, it never really reopened. Um, maybe in two weeks, in the first two weeks in June, I think after the protest started, I think governor Newsom was like, all right, let's reopen it. And then they reclosed again. Um, shortly thereafter. And the face mask mandate started on uh, the 16th of June. And if you look at, look at their exponentially increasing number of cases and deaths, it's been now two months. And so it's like, well, if all these things were really that effective, right, from social distancing and, and lockdowns and closing businesses and, and ma mandating face masks, why over 60 days later is California still in its exponential phase of both mortalities and cases? You're like, the, the correlation between our interventions and slowing down the spread, there, there's not, you know, if, there's not much of a correlation. I think, you know, the unfortunate reality and what people don't want to hear, but I think it's ultimately probably the truth is we can think we're doing all we can, but this is a, a, a a virus that's what 0.2 nanometers it's it's invisible we it's it's going to do its thing and it's going to affect the vulnerable which really sucks and we got to protect the vulnerable and i think the, the healthiest thing that we can do for young healthy people is to go out there and probably spread it around and develop antibodies so that the pool of people that are infectious will reduce over time and and therefore that will probably help the vulnerable down the road and so that's kind of my my thoughts on the whole thing totally there's such a level of of cognitive dissonance and Allie and I are constantly hitting our heads against the wall, I think, with a lot of the same um, same questions and issues. And it's not like it's, you know, the first virus and it's certainly not going to be the last to impact our population. So we're right there with you. Um, was there like a defining moment or <laughs> something that came out, a headline or, or anything that like really clicked for you as like something's not adding up or just the culmination of all of this? You know what? That's a really good question. It, it was early on um, in March when I started to realize that, there, that 
there's something going on because you weren't doing testing. There was no recommendation of wearing masks. And it just seemed to me that, that there was some sort of agenda to actually want to increase, um, to make this worse than it really needed to be. I, I, that's what I, I really, and, and, and I was actually watching a video from Peter Atia because back then he was doing a lot of these videos. Yeah. 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 And he, uh, so I was like, you know, my cortisol levels for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You, like, cause you know, he was like, you know, this thing is really, really scary. And, you know, and, and because there was this, this idea that we didn't want to know how bad it really was. That, that's what I kept hearing from people. It's like, okay, well, what's the case fatality ratio? What's the infectious fatality ratio? Like, what are the real odds of if you get this, you're going to die? And it seemed that no one wanted to figure out that answer. So then I started to realize like, maybe people, maybe whoever they are, if it's a government, if it's this, if it's, you know, maybe they, they don't want us to know so that we're more scared and we stay inside and we, we, we freak out and we buy all the toilet paper or whatever. So that was a red flag to me is that like, it was very easy to do a study because New York was going haywire. It was like, okay, well, we could test antibodies in people. We could, you know, um, test how many people have gone to all that. But it was like, there was no one seemingly at that point wanted to know. And then even Peter was like, at the end of one of his videos, he's like, look, I don't have a political bone in my body. And so I really struggle saying that, like, I, I don't want to say this, but he's like, I'm starting to get the impression that this is very political. And I was like, hmm, that's kind of interesting. Like, I've never heard him talk about politics. I never even cared about politics up to that point, to be honest. Like, my parents kind of talk about it here and there, but it's like, it's outside of my control. Then I actually started to pay attention, and I started to watch the news, and then I started to, Trump said something about hydroxychloroquine, and all of a sudden, the media is like, this, you know, he's not a doctor, why is he, ta and, and they started trashing hydroxychloroquine, then there was this Lancet gate, and I was like, okay, then I could really kind of see what's going on. So, again, I think a lot of people that have consumed a lot of mainstream media might hear what I'm saying and think that I'm a total whack job. But when you start actually paying attention to what's going on and you see what, how the media responds to different things. And, you know, for in June, the whole, the whole narrative was amplified black boy voices, which I think is amazing. Like, you know, let's hear from people of color, let's hear their concerns and let's, let's make a, a lasting change so that we can really be equal as, as people, right. Which was amazing. And then all of a sudden you see, you know, this African-American uh, African doctor talk about, um, you know, uh, all the, all the benefits of hydroxychloroquine and uh, you know, different combinations of drugs that she's used in her clinic and literally many, Minutes later, the media was all over her saying that she believes in this, she believes in that. And then all my friends who are very liberal were like jumping in on it. And it was like literally five <laughs> seconds, five seconds ago, they were talking about Amplify, you know, it was like, what was that? Um, uh, accept the challenge or challenge accepted was literally right the, the day before and then Amplify Black Voices. But literally 30 seconds later, they're just tearing down this, this woman of color. To me, I was like, okay, that's, that's kind of, how do you know so much information about this one doctor in minutes? Like they, they knew everything about her, where she's from, this and that. And, it, and just, there was no discretion. They just tore her down. So that to me was like, I could see how quickly the media can pivot and kind of change their own standards to, you know, really kind of propel this message that um, 
we have no effective treatments. We all need to sit at home and wait for the vaccine. We need to wear face masks forever, cancel school. So that, you know, it was a series of things, but, um, but to answer your question, I think it's important that we all start paying attention. Um, yeah. And it, when you pay attention, that's when you notice the incongruencies in the stories. Um, the virus went away in the post-George Floyd riots and protests. Like we never even, heard, all of a sudden literally, and I was watching New York Times websites, because I, 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 I look at their websites every day just to see what they're talking about. And literally, Ali, I kid you not, the day, the, in the days after George Floyd passed, and which was really unfortunate and, and everything uh, unnecessary, if you look at the websites, New York Times, LA Times, uh, Washington Post, literally there was nothing on the header about coronavirus. Nothing. It, it went away. And, and the headers for, of their webpage was showing you know, cases and fatalities and, and all that. It literally disappeared overnight. And I thought, that is really interesting. So I started to follow it every day. And then one, I can't remember, it was sometime in mid-June after the protests kind of calmed down and, and people, you know, it was more peaceful and there was less rioting. All of a sudden it was like the, the coronavirus came back and it was like, that to me was a major red flag. Like, hmm. Yeah. And, anyway. and no longer death toll, but now only talking cases. That was, that was oh. like the, the, you know, big goalpost shift, um, the, the bait and replace kind of thing that stood out to me for sure in that timestamp. And honestly, I remember back, Mike, in February seeing <laughs> an article from the New York Times, which is so funny again, because I've always aligned, like when I travel, I'm always like, yep, yeah, put a New York Times by my door, do to do. And I remember seeing an article saying with a headline said, we don't know why the elderly are dying from COVID. <laughs> and I lost my shit, man. I was just like, uh, sarcopenia, vitamin D deficiency, insulin resistance, polypharmia, like let, let's polypharmacy, you know, five medications plus, which is 60 plus individuals over age 80. Um, and I, right there, I was like, whoa, that's a broad blanket fear mongering statement with just zero, you know, I, I right away was like, oh man, this is serious. Um, so it's, it's been quite the wild ride to say the least. Let's talk about science because yeah. Something I think that a lot of your followers uh, really enjoy, and, and me being one of them, is the way that you disseminate complex concepts. And um, I think that what we keep hearing in the media is the science says, right? Or, um, you know, masks are 80 to 85% effective. And, and then that Lancet journal is quoted, but I mean, I, I'm not going to break it down again for my listeners. They know the breakdown of that. Um, how the data is being sensationalized. And um, just I want to hear your perspective, I guess, on that, because I think that people will quote or claim the science without ever glancing at the research study. And if they do, they may just look at the abstract, where when someone like you or someone who has some medical training is looking at the results and the methods, we can see a completely different story. But then even the conclusion of that research study can have some sensationalism in the language. Would you agree with that? And what are your thoughts on what you've been seeing in quote unquote, what the science says from headlines to what the science says in the journal? Mm, yeah, that's a great point, Ali. You know, what's interesting, and, and if we maybe just talk about face masks, for example, and uh, kind of talk about that, um, the science there is really more based upon theoretical mathematical models. So a lot of people say, well, it's all about science. And it's like, okay, well, and we, we've all heard about models and the modeling was what caused the shutdown initially, the lockdown. 
lockdowns because the modeling suggested that over 2 million Americans are going to die from the coronavirus if we don't do anything. And now we know those models, they constantly changed. They were constantly downgraded. It was like, oh, maybe it's not as bad as it really is. And so if you look at the face masks, for example, there, there are several randomized trials where they have healthcare workers, you know, wear a surgical mask versus an N95 mask versus a cloth mask. Everyone knows about that in the BMJ. But, but if we actually look at the data, for example, on face masks, it's virtually up to now. And maybe there was a study last week that I missed, but it's mostly based upon modeling where you have these statisticians create some sort of theoretical model and, and they use mathematics that are visually, I mean, I, I did calculus and, and all this sort of stuff as a pre-med undergrad. Um, good luck trying to figure out you know, the, the inputs and, and so forth these, for these models. So that's challenging. But, but then you look, yeah, if you just look at the abstract, you're like, oh yeah, the face masks are amazing. They're, they're going to save X number of lives. But again, these are all theoretical uh, models that, and the inputs change and you know, they're, they're not, I don't know. So that's what I see. And the, the unfortunate part that what I'm seeing overall is the media and a lot of our, our Facebook friends who are now, uh, they turn into epidemiologists and infectious disease experts uh, over the last several months, you know, they've, they're, they're not looking at um, the, the idea that there's this differ, difference in susceptibility. And so what, that, that's what you need to look at is when you look at these studies is look at the age of the population. So age, and we can talk about immunosenescence and accelerated cellular aging. I think it's relevant to this and I, it's fun to talk about, but they're not looking at the age and they're not looking at the number of comorbidities. And that's challenging because if you, when you look at the studies, some of the statistics and the numbers and how they phrase them can be intimidating. And, 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 and I have a master's degree in nutrition and it's still some Sometimes takes me a second. I have to really look at it and, and write stuff down and look at it again to make sure that I'm interpreting things exactly uh, as as they are presented. But um, yeah, you you see the media just run with a story without looking at the nuances and the details. And uh, again, what everyone is probably susceptible at some point to this virus. I mean, if you have a, a super healthy person and you give them enough of a viral load, it, it's pro, it's likely that you could overwhelm their initial innate immune response and they could have this cytokine storm and, and re respiratory failure. I mean, so this is what we see in healthcare workers when they're, when they do get sick, some of these people have no preexisting conditions, very healthy, but they've had so much viral load that it's problematic. But the reality is for someone out in the community getting exposed to this, and if, if they don't have hypertension, prediabetes, diabetes, obesity, and they're not overweight and they're not, they're, biologic age is not accelerated, the probability of them dying is much, much lower, but st statistically doesn't mean that you still can't get injured by this. So I just want to clarify that, that, um, you know, this idea of this viral load. And so that's like, and the reason why we should talk about that is, is people are out in public wearing face masks on hiking trails and bike trails. And to, to suspect that the viral load of someone's teeny little aerosolized particle that you might happen to inhale, it's going to be so minimal that it probably is not going to be a, a realistic concern for most people. Um, but yeah, this, the stats, you really got to look at it. It's really challenging. So, um, but I think it's good for us. Here's, here's why we should talk about this. It gives us hope. There's being scared and realizing that Basically, you're helpless. There's nothing you can do. You're a sitting duck. I've had some clients, you know, that have, have created new consults with me through this pandemic. And they're like, dude, I'm so scared. 
the media scared the crap out of me. I haven't left my house. My wife does all the grocery shopping. I've stayed in my bedroom. Like when I see her, I wear a face mask. That's no way to live your life. Like that is a really, uh, you got to realize that there's stuff we can do. And so we can talk about exercise, fasting, breath work. We can talk about all these things. And that is more empowering. Like we need to feel empowered. Yeah, most definitely. It's so interesting because uh, I remember, I mean, I've broken down, like I said, the the Lancet piece, which looked at that big observational review for my listeners. And then when the uh, Journal of Nature came out, when they did the three-tiered study and they looked at influenza, they looked at H1N1, and they looked at coronavirus. When they talked about the variants of coughing, talking, and um, speaking, yelling, I believe is the third thing. And they did with mask, without mask. They noted in the corona specifically infected population that on average, they were coughing 17 times per 30 minutes. But there was a subset of the corona infected individuals that were not coughing at that level. And that subset had no variance of aerosol particles compared with mask or without. So it's that exact point of viral load. That AKA is an asymptomatic carrier, right? Would you agree, Mike? Like, (laughs) it's like, so I saw that and I was so stoked. I was like, look, here's evidence that an asymptomatic carrier doesn't carry a high viral load. And, and, and we go back to common sense of if sick, stay home, if you must leave your house and are sick, you should wear a mask, but asymptomatic Mm -hmm. carriers, there's, there's evidence right here. And, and, and that's not getting, understood or or even given the time of day it's so wild and, and maddening when you understand the science and the logic and, and it, it's even hard to break through individuals that are highly intelligent because of i think that amygdala lizard brain that's been turned on from the the fear you know we, we just shut down that frontal lobe and um i think that that's a, a big area of concern when we lose critical thinking um, and we're just in this turmoil of swamp brain it's so nuts. It, it's scary to see. Um, PhDs, I've had a lot of people comment to me who are PhDs are like, you know, mad and this and that, but it's like they, they can't even see the own kind of logical fallacies in, the, in their own argument. So yeah. I, and here's the thing about it, you know, th- that's frustrating. It's like, okay, so you want to double down out of an abundance of caution. I would, okay. If everyone was like, we're shutting McDonald's, we're, we're closing down donuts. We're restricting how much sugar people can eat. We're not allowing people to buy soda pop. I would wear a mask out of an abundance of caution. Be like, you're right. Okay, let's all do everything we can, right? Okay, great. And let's just squash this virus. But we're not. We're allowing people to eat all the crap that are making them more vulnerable. All of a sudden now, you know, here in Washington State, you can go to a restaurant, but you don't have to wear your mask while you're eating. So here you have these people that are like vehemently supporting masks. But as soon as they walk into the restaurant, they literally pull their masks off. And so you have all these people sharing food, talking, laughing, and all that, which I think is great, by the way. I think it's awesome that people are able to, to do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But they're in a closed environment. And they feel safe because they're at a restaurant because the government said that you don't have to wear masks in a restaurant. Be like, well, to be totally real, that's probably where you would most, out of any, you're not going to get it in a park. You're not going to get this walking at your dog, okay? But if you're in a restaurant where people are laughing and talking and loud, there's music, like to me, that's probably where... If someone was like this, you know, had a high viral load, you might actually probably get sick, you know, because you're going to get stuff into your food. But all of a sudden, people feel so safe because the government said like, well, face masks aren't required in a restaurant. So anyway, the point is, 
we're, we're doubling down on some things and we're kind of giving a shy eye to other things that I think are going to make a huge, huge could make a huge impact. I mean, look, we're going to start school again. Summer's almost over. We know that RSV and, and influenza, um, you know, all of these things, which do kill people, by the way, I think what it was like 17,000 people die a year from RSV and then from the flu kills, depending upon the season around 50,000, sometimes more. So, you know, we haven't done anything to make more people- children, statistically more children. Last five years of the flu, each of the five years have killed more children, you know, than 100%. COVID. Yeah. You know, but no one pulled their kids out of school during flu season. No one, no teachers say, hey, I'm not going to go to school because there's the flu. We, we just, we take that risk as part of living. And like you said, I mean, our prefrontal cortex is essentially offline uh, for a lot of people. And so we have these teachers who are in their 20s writing their own obituaries. I mean, it's like, really? I, I, I think the, the risk, I mean, if you, I, I ran the numbers from the CDC and, and if, I think it was as of August 11th, it was 200 people under the age of 24 had died from the coronavirus. And of those 200 people, I mean, you know, we see the media reports, uh, a lot of these pe people had childhood obesity and were overweight and, and had this and that. And I'm not blaming them for dying, but I'm just saying, well, we need to have a realistic uh, concern. We, we need to double down on other things. And, and your listeners know this. 600,000 people die a year from, from various heart and cardiovascular related issues. Have we done anything to, to tell people to do things to help prevent future heart attacks and improve their cardiovascular fitness? No. We know that the combination of diabetes and, and obesity uh, is another 400 some odd thousand people that die just in the US every year. We haven't done anything. We haven't told people, hey, during the pandemic, still get your 10,000 steps in. We've closed parks. We've made it harder for people to do this and we've scared them. I kid you not, my neighbor um, who's renting actually, but anyway, she, she lives right next to me. They haven't left their house. These, this, this couple, and they have a kid that uh, is seven years old, just a year younger than my daughter. They have not left their house literally since March. I mean, every day the FedEx truck comes in, the UPS truck comes in. I've seen the husband, actually, I stayed that back. I, I've seen him once outside and he was a little bit heavy set before this thing. Now he falls easily into the obese category. And it, it just breaks my heart because they're so concerned about the virus that they haven't even, and I never hear them in the backyard anymore. I used to. But, but the media has caused so much fear that people are scared to just live. And that's a shame. I've got neighbors in the same, same bucket. Like when we moved in in March, we saw them in their backyard all, all the time. And now I haven't seen their five-year-old in like three months. It's kind of crazy. Yes. Um, what about just in the camp of, of kind of favorable health supporting shifts that we can make? Yeah. Um, so obviously I'm hearing an argument for exercise and getting outside, but what are, I guess, some of your favorite tips and interventions for actually making an impact on your immune and metabolic health during this time? Amazing. And Sorry, I've been going on and on all about all the bad stuff, but we should have. We like love it. <laughs> we totally should have talked about that in the beginning. But let's drill down so we take some some people get some practical takeaways. So, one of the things that uh, that that the research has shown, David Sinclair's group, and I just had Matt Caberlin over here to do a podcast. He's a longevity, what's called a gero scientist, someone who studies the physiology of aging. Um, and what the research really really shows is that accelerated biologic age. Um, is a risk factor for, for this virus and any other virus. And so 
just to, just to clarify, um, so I'm 37 years old. I'll be 38 uh, next Monday, actually. So, um, but my biology says my cells, my epigenetic age is actually 40. So uh, because of some earlier choices that I've made, uh, maybe because I, I, although I know I should be going to bed at nine o'clock, sometimes I stay up to one in the morning editing videos, which I know is terrible. But um, so, so we all, some of us have a discordance between how old we are, uh, like our age versus how old our cells are. And, and this is something that we all need to be aware of. And there's now testing that we can do that's reasonably affordable between $250 and $300. You can test your epigenetic age. And really what, the, what we're looking at is the age of our immune system. So as our immune system ages biologically, it's, it, it, it elicits a less robust initially, initial early immune response. And this is what exactly makes, makes humans much more susceptible to this, this particular coronavirus and presumably other viruses is we don't have the people that are hospitalized and have severe disease have a kind of lackluster early initial interferon response, which would normally neutralize viruses and things like that. And so what happens is the viral load in the body, the virus starts to replicate and take over cellular machinery and host machinery. And the viral load becomes so much so that our immune system says, we don't know what's going on. We're going to throw the kitchen sink at this. Interleukin-6, TNF-alpha, interleukin-17. So we have this so-called cytokine storm. And what ultimately causes respiratory failure and organ failure is actually not the virus. It's our own immune system response that has become dysregulated. It's like, you know, I, I use analogy, you know, if you have bees in your house, or mosquitoes, and you were you could easily use a fly swatter early. But if if you were to leave the doors open, you put like I don't know hamburgers or meat or something, and you have all these bugs, and then you use a shotgun, you're going to destroy your house, and you might destroy some of the bugs. And so that's kind of what is happening, and and part part of why that's happening again is that our immune system is aged. There's so much background for a lot of people. And Ali, you hit the nail on the head when you were talking about that New York Times article in March that didn't re- that said, duh, we don't know why these old people are getting this. Well, wh- what we do know is that if you have chronic smoldering inflammation, what's called sterile inflammation, and, and a lot of you know conditions, autoimmunity, type 2 diabetes, obesity, cardiovascular disease, is characterized by this background, low-grade, what's called sterile inflammation. Sterile because it's not really derived from a microbe or a pathogen. It's derived from our own awry physiologic machinery from the conditions. Again, diabetes, prediabetes, obesity, autoimmunity. Okay, And, and if our immune system, here, here's an example. Um, if you listen to someone on speakerphone as you're walking your dog out in wilderness, in the wilderness, you can hear them great, right? You don't need to turn up the volume. You can hear them. But if you're in downtown Manhattan and there's, there's taxi cabs everywhere, there's horns honking, there's buses going by, good luck trying to have a conversation. It's going to be so loud. And the buses, the taxi cab, that ambient noise is like chronic inflammation. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of what, what's happening here is what, what we've seen, and this is years of data, uh, in individuals that are overweight, diabetic, uh, or have autoimmunity, have increased disease severity from the flu. From, they have poor recovery from surgical uh, elective procedures, whether it's like you know an orthopedic procedure. If you're overweight or obese, you're more likely to have complications from that, uh, slow recovery. Your immune system doesn't repair the wound. You might get a secondary infection. So we've known this for a long time. If you have this background inflammation, 
from metabolic disease, then you're, you're not, your body is not going to elicit a robust initial immune response that will protect you from, for example, the coronavirus, but, but other viruses. And, and that's what we're seeing here is like really the, 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 I don't want to say the sonic one on, but it's really kind of what is making the pivot between like, asymptomatic people and people that are in the ICU it is this level of chronic inflammation that is causing their immune system to not have a sufficient and early robust immune response. And this was really fascinating research for me to figure out because there's this guy at Duke University, a, a fellow, I can't pronounce his name, but I could give it to you in the show notes, that has been studying bats. And bats coexist with all of these coronaviruses, whether it's SARS-CoV-1, SARS-CoV-2, MERS, and here's how they coexist. And it, it, the virus doesn't affect them. It literally, and they're mammals like us. They have very similar organs and all this sort of thing. Here's how they're able to coexist with them. When they get infected with SARS-CoV-2, they elicit a very robust and strong interferon and innate immune response. So they take care of the viral load and so forth uh, really early. And then their immune system kind of chills out and it calms down. This is the exact opposite about as to what happens from an immunopathologic standpoint in, in humans. We have this lackluster early response and then the immune system goes, oh my gosh, the virus is everywhere. Let's throw everything we got at it. And, and, and what happens is this collateral damage and, and organ failure. And so what's interesting is we talk about the therapeutics here. The, the, one of the key mediators that affects that the bats rely upon is this intracellular uh, switch called the NLRP3 inflammasome. And this is, uh, think about your thermostat in your house or think about your turning on the hot water. This inflammasome, it's just this net, this, this hub, this upstream of a, of a gene, upstream of a transcription factor, then when activated, what it can do is drive inflammation. So the interleukin-6s, the cytokines, all of that stuff are byproducts of this inflammasome being triggered. And so what bats are able to do is you know, they throw the interferons and, and have a huge early response and then they quell as by, by inhibiting this um, inflammasome. So, so people might be like, say, okay, inflammasome, that sounds complex. Well, so what do I do? This is where time-restricted feeding comes in. This is where intermittent fasting comes in. This is where, in my estimation, a ketogenic diet shines. We have researchers, Emily Goldberg from Yale, who has looked at animals and found that you know, animals, and, and there are some human data that, that's uh, being published soon, that we're able, through our diet, we're able to, to also inhibit this inflammasome and therefore decrease the background inflammation. So that's kind of the take-home message for everyone. Uh, when you walk before a meal, when you walk after a meal, when you get your good sleep, when you manage your stress, when you eat whole real food that I know you talk a lot about on this podcast, which is great, we're reducing this background inflammation. We're taking the burden off all of the ambient chronic noise so that if we get infected with a bug or we we, we get exposed to something, we can do what our immune system is designed to do. And mount a robust early response instead of wait until it's too late and throwing the kitchen sink at it. So that's what these, what the science has, has really shown. So um, anything that we can do to reduce that chronic background inflammation and, and someone might say, well, okay, well, how do we know if I have this background inflammation? Well, do you wake up and you have an elevated fasting glucose? There's a lot of reasons why that could be from circadian rhythm disruption and so forth. But if you have background inflammation, the immune system 
when you're inflamed like that, it, it really thrives on sugar and, and can pivot its phenotype flavor. Your immune system has literally can, your macrophages, for example, can shift in their phenotype from an M1 to an M2 macrophage. One is inflammatory, one's anti-inflammatory. Your diet uh, affects that. So low sugar diet, um, low processed food, whole real food, movement, circadian rhythm. Uh, and, and then I think the composition of your diet and the ratios of, of, of carbohydrates to fat to protein, I think that really matters because we know glycemic variability uh, and having blood sugar issues is linked to increased disease severity. Multiple, multiple studies have shown this to now. And so the, the tighter regulation you can have and less swings in your glucose uh, is favorable. So I don't know. That, that's kind of the, the big picture that I think is, is not being talked about. Okay. Now I want to go into biohacking techniques with cold therapy, but I'm kind of hesitant to ask. Uh, before we do so, let's have a word from our mid-roll sponsor, Naturally Nourished Supplements. Just love when the sponsor for our episode is us. <laughs> so naturally nourished formulas deliver potency, purity, and efficacy. So potency meaning that you're getting a powerful dose per serving of the stated active ingredients that are actually supposed to be in your formula. All of our products are going to be pharmaceutical grade due to our medical licenses. So you're able to access products that would not normally be available to consumers over the counter. We're also using synergistic formulas. So meaning that each product has a specific form of its featured ingredient to ensure best absorption. And then we guarantee testing, that's third-party testing, for potency and purity, including mold, toxic metals, contaminants, and confirming that active ingredient in the stated dosage, including ID-guaranteed colony-forming units in all of our probiotics. All of the supplements in the Naturally Nourished line are non-GMO, free of additives, dyes, preservatives. They are soy-free and gluten-free, so you're not dealing with any of those harmful fillers. And yet, the compounds that you are getting are going to provide, as Becky said, efficacy, meaning clinical relevant outcomes. Two formulas we want to highlight with the idea of today's episode. One would be cellular antiox. So cellular antiox provides three powerful ingredients, N-acetylcysteine, otherwise known as NAC, S-acetylated glutathione, or a absorbable form of the highest antioxidant available in our body, glutathione, and B6, which aids in that conversion process. B6 also plays a huge role with ADHD, cognitive function, and as an activator to serotonin and other neurotransmitters supporting healthy brain chemistry. Cellular antiox is a fantastic consideration to reduce your cellular aging or your oxidative stress on a cellular level, literally providing you the two most potent antioxidants, which would reduce that oxidative stress and ensuring their activity and their absorbability. Uh, we also know that NAC and glutathione have successful outcomes that can reduce viral replication, enhance respiratory function, and also reduce inflammation. So if you're looking for a formula that can regulate your energy, will also make you resilient and support some anti-aging health, check out Cellular Antiox on AllieMillerRD.com. And then I love that Mike in a little bit is going to muse on 
berberine. We talk about this a lot in the context of our beat the bloat cleanse, but our berberine boost is also an amazing formula for supporting metabolic health, helping to lower your fasting blood glucose, and uh, can be as effective as metformin in that way. Most definitely. And we've talked about how metformin can be used in fertility support, reducing that PCOS activity that elevated insulin levels can have. So this can be a great tool to balance hormone health as well as blood sugar and metabolism, supporting that brown body fat or that more mitochondria activity to enhance the thermogenesis of the body or the metabolic health. So again, go on over to AllieMillerRD.com where you can find formulas that are powerful, safe, and effective, and priced affordable for you and your household. Let's talk about temperature therapy, Mike, because I know that's something, that's that's probably the one. So I, I think I shared with you when we met that I have brain odds, and that's like the one that I just can't <laughs> fathom. I have like this really bad relationship emotionally with cold and neurological health. What would a cold plunge do and what does the cold baths do to these inflammatory pathways? And let's talk about oxidative stress. Mm, I love that. Yeah, Sell so, me on um, it. Make me strong. <laughs> totally. You know, and, and the Raynaud's thing is, is tough. I've had a lot of people that have Raynaud's as well and, and they cannot do the cold. I'm like sauna emerging. anytime. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and so this is the thing. Um, if we think about thermal stress, this category. So if we just put all of the health remedies in buckets, you know, we have the circadian rhythm bucket, we have the glucose bucket, we have the exercise bucket, stress management bucket, microbiome bucket, and then we have the so-called thermal stress bucket. Okay. So thermal stress meaning high heat and high cold are both favorable in how the, in so far as how they affect the immune system in a favorable manner. So if you can only do one, then, then do the one that works for you. I mean, it's, it's like a luxury and a first world problem to be like, oh gosh, I got to do both, you know? So I, I think <laughs> there, there, there are benefits to both. And part of this is just the resilience that's created, but how the immune system is beneficially altered through, through thermal stress. Now, if we talk about cold stress, specifically the mechanisms, the immuno mechanisms here are related to brown adipose tissue. Um, is, is basically what the research has shown. So we have, again, just like your immune cells have different personalities and your, your metabolic state can influence which personality your immune system will express. Well, the cold stress favorably affects the personality of your fat cells. And so we know that we have visceral fat, we have this white fat, we have beige fat, we have brown fat. It used to be thought many years ago that brown fat was just this stuff that children had to help them because their thermal regulation is not that good so that they would leverage this brown adipose tissue. And it's called brown because it's enriched in this organelle that your listeners know about called mitochondria. Mitochondria, when you look at them under a microscope, are brown. Um, they're found in muscle. That's why muscle kind of has this reddish look. And so this type of fat was called brown fat for that reason. Now, what makes the what is the mitochondria doing in there? Well, the mitochondria, it's uncoupled. So instead of converting energy that you have from your diet into energy that can be utilized to make cells do stuff called ATP, it's uncoupled, meaning that that energy then is making heat. So it's inefficient, which is actually great. You know, for people that are trying to lose fat, it's an amazing thing. If the more brown fat you have, that means, you know, the food that you're eating, it's, it's just being converted to heat, which is awesome. And so it turns out that, that 
Ben Beckman and other people have talked about how ketones favorably influence the metabolic physiology of even our white fat to behave more like brown fat and waste energy, which is what we want. We want our muscles to be very efficient at using energy so that when we work out, when we walk, they're efficient but we want our fat cells to, to waste energy and, and be uncoupled. So when we uh, do this periodic cold stress, what we're doing is we're, we're influencing, we're exercising our fat tissue so that we actually convert our, our, our white adipose tissue into what's called beige adipose. So it's, it's in between this brown fat and it, and it has more mitochondria. And, and in so doing, it's affecting the immune system and free radical stressors and things like that. So this is what the scientists have shown. There's been a lot of research out of a group in Quebec, Canada, that have looked at this. And, and they found, basically, you don't have to go into a cold plunge you know, if you don't have one, you can go walking outside, uh, just take your shirt off or, or as, as the fall comes and you want to do your, your exercise, uh, get a little uncomfortable or open up the doors in your, in your bedroom at night or turn down the thermostat in your home. There, you know, these are simple things to just get a little uncomfortable. You can just end your warm shower with 20 seconds of cold. So just that, that's physiologic stress, what it's been shown to do is favorably influence the immune system. And you mentioned oxidative stress or free radicals. And, and this is what's really interesting if we think about why potentially exercise, why potentially a low carb ketogenic style diet might be effective is oxidative stress where these free radicals are mediators that the immune system uses. And um, you know they're released by immune cells, monocytes, macrophages, et cetera. And, it turns out that some of the mechanisms through which um, the ketogenic diet or low carb diet or or just using fat as your primary fuel, uh, it, it's more favorable in how it reduces levels of oxidative stress by affecting, and I don't want to get too deep into the weeds, uh, but this NADPH, which is a, an intracellular kind of redox sensor that, you know, if we eat this way, it, it tends to um, reduce uh, levels of the free radicals by affecting this, the activity of this sensor. And there's been a great review paper that I can send you to put in the show notes by uh, John Newman, Eric Verdon, Brianna Stubbs, and a few others that have, have unpacked all the mechanisms as to how a ketogenic diet might be a therapy for people that are sick with, with pathogens and, and viruses and things like that, but also as a mitigation strategy to actually help to make people less susceptible. Because again, these free radicals and oxidative stress can be problematic for cellular metabolism. And, and part of the mechanisms here that may be helpful is the so-called NADH and NADPH, which uh, are, are little sensors and gauges that, you know, that, that can become awry, but can be favorably impacted by ketones and, and a ketogenic style diet. And while we're down this super nerdy rabbit hole, I want to go a little deeper maybe and, and um, let's unpack a little bit in the area of time-restricted eating and fasting, because I know this is a big talking point in, the, in an area of expertise for you. Um, and I know you posted a meme semi-recently of um, updates on calorie restriction versus early time-restricted feeding. So you had the lady slapping the, uh, the guy in the face with the calorie restriction. <laughs> right. That was funny, eh? Um... It was comp that that meme was you know the memes are funny like sometimes they really go big and sometimes they don't but that I was just trying to convey to to people um, a lot of people that are in the so called calories in calories out camp who really believe that the human body is kind of like 
an internal combustion engine like a car. And the reason why we gain weight is just because it's very simple energy overload. And I'm not saying that energy doesn't matter, but there are other, uh, you know, physiologic mechanisms, epigenetics and, and this and that. So the, this interesting, the study in the UK actually wanted to, and I've been in touch with these researchers over the years because they've been trying to figure out, okay, what is it about fasting that's favorable? Because a lot of people, and, and time-restricted feeding is just a, a subtype of intermittent fasting that bakes in this element of circadian biology. So instead of saying, well, I'm going to fast for 16 hours today and only eat in an eight-hour window, time-restricted feeding says, okay, well, you're going to eat, you know, let's say it's, if it's an early time-restricted feeding, a lot of the studies look at that ETF for early, they'll have subjects eat, you know, say at 10 a.m. and then stop eating at say 2 p.m. So you are still doing intermittent fasting, but it's in under a circadian rhythm constraint. So, and in my estimation, you know, I don't like to complicate things for people, but if, but if someone is open to being, uh, I think time-restricted feeding is helpful, especially for, for women that have sleep issues as they go through menopause. Um, we, we know that circadian rhythms and, and people that have adrenal health issues too. I mean, a lot of, uh, one of the great tests to look at your adrenal glands is the cortisol awakening response by the Dutch test to see, okay, when you get up in the morning, how much cortisol is being released by your adrenals? And a lot of People say, well, I just have this adrenal fatigue. A lot of that uh, circadian rhythms influence the output of the adrenal. So what I like about using food as a circadian rhythm in trainer is that when we're, we're a little bit more diligent about when we're eating and when we're fasting, we're helping to fine tune our body's circadian clock system. So, uh, and of course, I'm very biased about this. But anyway, the study, what they did is they had people do two weeks of either uh, time-restricted feeding. And they said, okay, you're going to do, you're going to start eating at eight in the morning. And I, I, I can't remember now if it's eight, I think it was eight to two or is it 10 to four, one of those. So it was a little bit earlier in the day and, the, and they tracked a lot of different biomarkers beforehand and after, and then they did a glucose tolerance test after the intervention. And then they had a washout period. And then what they figured out, and this is where the, the materials and methods get a little bit cloudy to me. There was a supplementary document that went along with this, but they figured out what was the energy deficit that these individuals created by doing, by compressing their feeding window. And it was a little bit different for every person and so forth based upon their body weight. Uh, and so then what they did is they, they recreated that energy deficit or calculated it. And maybe it was 300 calories a day for this person, 600 for that person. And then what they did is they said, okay, so we're going to put you on a controlled diet that is energetically matched that compared to what you did in that time shifted feeding part to see physiologically what are those changes if you do that for two weeks. And they did see a lot of statistically significant details uh, in glucose metabolism, in post-meal insulin response. And my favorite, because I love exercise and I, I think skeletal muscle is just so important to longevity, they found an enhanced anabolic sensitivity to a protein-containing meal only in the people that did time-restricted feeding, not the folks that were just eating a so-called calorie, you know, calorie-restricted diet um, when they could eat whenever they want. So to me, that's really important because we have so many people now who are awakened to this idea that, hey, we know that skeletal muscle is a glucose and, and leptin and insulin sponge. We need more of this because we lose it as we age anyway. And this strategy of fasting and, and time-restricted feeding can actually enhance the sensitivity um, for your skeletal muscle to absorb amino acids and so on. And 
I think it's, it's interesting because, you know, people are scared to do something like a, eating a one meal a day or even eating in a smaller window because they're worried about the so-called catabolism of muscle. But it, it shows that, you know, the body becomes more sensitive uh, to actually breaking down muscle and preserving that by increasing growth hormone and different counter regulatory hormones as a means to preserve lean muscle mass and, and catabolize fat. So anyway, that, that to me was really interesting. But if we could weave back in real quick, you know, this connection between fasting and time-restricted feeding in the immune system, I think that would be amazing because this is another kind of practical, hopefully a takeaway for people is scientists have looked at the immune response of folks that have done um, Ramadan fasting. And because this is, this is used uh, throughout you know, Ramadan in, in, in folks in Muslim uh, countries and, and people that practice uh, various religious uh, fasting purposes. And they've shown that just doing Ramadan fasting, uh, it actually decreases all of these cytokines that we talked about that are linked with this background chronic inflammation. If people remember the horns honking in New York and you can't really hear the person on the phone, well, if you reduce that background inflammation, you make the immune system more snappy and responsive and more resilient to infectious microbes. And um, various studies over the years have shown just that in Ramadan fasters. So we know that fasting in general uh, is helpful for the immune system and longevity, but intermittent fasting in particular is helpful for reducing that chronic inflammation. So uh, again, this is why I'm critical of of kind of what we're doing. We haven't told anyone anything from a government standpoint, public health, it's all wash your hands, social distance, wear a mask. And what about all the other stuff? And that's why I think it's great that we can have these conversations. Oh, most definitely. It's it's so important because I, I don't think, right, anyone outside of our scope is talking about the T-cell connection to insulin and just so many of these mechanisms. I'm, I'm curious, Mike, when you talked about that assessment of your age, what was the assessment? You know, was it telomere length? Were you looking at glutathione status? What, what were the biomarkers that were assessed? Yeah, that's a wonderful question. Um, so I, I've done that before. I've looked at my telomeres and everything, and there's a lot of variability there. But it was using a technology called epigenetic age. And so essentially within our cells, um, people are familiar with genes and all that. I kind of liken genes to maybe the hardware of your iPhone or your of your Android. So when you get a software update, it's changing the functionality of your phone, but it's not changing the hardware. That's just software. Well, in our cells, in all of our cells, we have this thing called the epigenome. And that, that genome is, is much like the software. It's like getting a firmware update. And so all of our daily inputs influence the software called the epigenome. And it turns out as we age, our epigenome changes. And this is called these epigenetic clocks. And so some folks, um, there's the Horvath clock, the Levine clock. There's a few of these characterized epigenetic clocks. And so I did the Horvath clock through a company called My DNA. And essentially what, what they've looked at is tens of thousands of people through, throughout their life, different ages, different diseases and all this sort of stuff. And they figured out, um, you know, kind of repeating marks that are characterized uh, based upon at the cellular level, how quickly uh, someone is aging. And so that's what, what I looked at. And so uh, it, it's very simple. It's just a blood. You, you could do a urine test. I think you can do a, um, like a, I think there was like a cheek swab. I thought for whatever reason, blood would be more accurate. So it's just a little finger prick. Like you would do a glucose test and you put it onto a little piece of paper and you send it in. And, um, 
I was what I thought I would be right around my own age because I used to like overtrain like crazy. I used to, when I was an adolescent, I did a lot of stupid stuff. So I, I didn't think that, and I'm not trying to be this Mr. Longevity guy that lives to 190. Like that's not my goal, you know? So I was like, but I, but it, it was a nice wake up call for me that my cells are, my biology is three years older than my chronologic age. And what's cool is I can change that like through fasting, through really doubling down on when I go to bed. Cause that's kind of my, my thing is I love to consume, I love like read research and I'm, I'm editing videos and I'm like really creative for whatever reason, like late at night. And like, I got to change that cause obviously it's not working for me. Um, but yeah, so that's, it's a cool test. People can just Google epigenetic age or uh, my, it's called my, the, technology that I use out of LA, mydnh.com. And uh, I have no financial affiliations. I just think it's a cool technology because again, if we, if we look at, you know, the media will, will pump a story and say, Hey, look, this healthy 29 year old got ravaged by the virus. And you're like, okay, well you just do a little digging and you're like, well, that healthy 29 year old, they look like they're like 45. And then if you look at their diet, you look at the food pictures they have on social media. And, and just because that person doesn't have a diagnosed disease doesn't mean their cells aren't at an advanced age. And so that, um, and if, if we look at the, the treatments that are being utilized uh, in longevity, for example, uh, giving people uh, metformin or, or rapamycin or these mTOR inhibitors, what they're doing is they're purging these old cells. And so they have this synolytic effect where, you know, sometimes as we age, we accumulate uh, cellular garbage and dysfunctional cells. They're called uh, senescent cells. And, and many of these longevity therapies are purging those cells. And, and, and theoretically, these cells are being purged from the immune system. And so therefore, again, we're having this uh, better immune response if we're exposed to, to a virus. And so that's what's kind of interesting is some work in Australia has looked at giving low doses of a drug called rapamycin that's, that's utilized in much higher doses for uh, tumor uh, transplant rejection. But in low doses, it, it has a synolytic effect. And, um, and it's making elderly people more responsive to even something like a flu vaccine. And they're having less respiratory illnesses and, and all that. So I think it's, again, we have all these tools that are, that are at our fingertips, that are generic, that are cheap, but no one's talking about it. Yeah. I'll totally link the my DNH in the show notes. And Allie and I are raising eyebrows as we were both exchanging podcast notes at like 1 a.m. <laughs> yeah. last night. So we feel you. <laughs> definitely an area of, of interest for um, our nerdier listeners to dig into. Um, as we're kind of going down the nerd rabbit hole, let's just keep going. Um, sure. What about um, just nutrient influence and, and, um, not necessarily related to, you know, pandemic and immune health, but if you want, um, let's talk about your favorite two nutrients right now and why. Or compounds. Yeah. Compounds, you know, biochemical. Yeah. yeah. You know what? Um, I mean, of course I'm a huge fan of vitamin D and vitamin K and all the fat soluble stuff, but I'll just assume that you all have talked about that and I'll maybe talk a little about something that is getting some airtime and that's berberine because berberine, uh, and metformin, uh, function very similarly in how they, they affect the organelle that we talked about with regards to cold water immersions in the mitochondria. So they affect the mitochondria and kind of trick the mitochondria into thinking there's an energy deficit. And so therefore there's this enzyme that increases called AMPK. It's just an intracellular enzyme. It's a kinase. 
And what that does is that stimulates a process of autophagy that causes us to oxidize more fat. So with regards to just longevity, and I think a lot of people have years and years of of unfortunately accruing metabolic debt is what I call, you know, just from not exercising, from eating junk food and all that. And so I think, you know, the, the supplements can help to accelerate the changes that they're seeking. And so berberine is one, one thing that I'm pretty excited about uh, for that reason. And you know, it's, it, it, we talked about, you know, glycemic variability and, and I know you guys are, are going to talk more about that with your um, continuous glucose monitor testing. And if you take berberine, I mean, it's really remarkable what it does and how it just, it just basically flat glucose and it cranks up your ketones. So, you know, that's one thing that, that I'm excited about. Again, uh, irrespective of a pandemic or not, but especially now that we know that poor blood sugar control is, is linked with increased disease severity. I'm, I'm really excited about that. Um, another thing, another tool, I think in our toolbox is the gut and the microbiome and what has been kind of shown at least in, in some studies that unfortunately haven't made airtime in the press is reduced diversity of, of um, you know, gut bacteria and, uh, and all that is linked with increased severity and so on. So we know that um, in various ecosystems, you know, if you have reduced diversity, then you have reduced stability. And so it seems that that is, is coming to play here with, with regards to this pandemic. So I think fermented foods, you know, are really under recognized unfortunately by a lot of people but uh, that's just a staple in our house staple in our kitchen um, so more ferments and you know of course probiotics strain specific probiotics that have been shown to affect the immune system I think are a good idea you know anytime but especially right now and especially for people that have you know, if they weren't born via you know vaginally if they're born via c-section if they were given antibiotics if they weren't breastfed like I think we really got it, got to um, be more proactive about supporting our gut and our microbiome. So those are some things that I think are pretty exciting. Love it. And actually, perfect transition, because I wanted to ask you about the homesteading process. Uh, I want to kind of close talking about food a little bit, but I got the pleasure of meeting with you in person uh, last fall. And um, at that time, you had a couple pigs and you got your chickens rocking and over that falls on Instagram enjoys seeing your backyard and gardens and such. When and where did you start with that? How has that evolved? And any tips for listeners that want to take a more intimate role in their own food production or their own pharmacy, if you will? Oh, I love that word pharmacy. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's a lot of fun because it forces you to get outside. You know, everything we've talked about now, I think people have heard, you know, getting outside is so important. So um, that that was, you know, one of the impetuses to do it. Um, it it's been a dream and a goal of mine, but we were uh, renting in Seattle and we we bought our place where we live, where Ali, you came in, um, let's see, was it exactly five years ago? So it was July of 2015. So um, immediately when we moved in, I was like, okay, so this is where the sun is. So I think first thing is, and here's what's kind of cool because it reinforces everything. So if you want to have success, you know, with, with growing anything, you need to be aware of like, okay, at what part of the day is the sun the brightest, you know, mid part of the day, if you're growing full sun stuff versus stuff that's partial, partial sun, you know, for example, berries, I love berries. So I found a spot. It's like, okay, this is where we're going to plant our raspberries, our blueberries, um, maybe fruit trees, but some of the herbs and everything like that, we're going to put them over here. So 
Yeah, it, it, it really connects you so much more with the world around you that I, I think is kind of missing, you know, this idea of eating in season. But yeah, where I started was just observing the environment and started super small, you know, at first. And prior to us moving, um, we were renting in a place and, and we just grew herbs. So I think that's like, if someone's like, look, I have a condo, I have an apartment, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. You can go get some some rosemary, you can get some oregano, you can get some, you know, various herbs and things start there. Um, and, and also I think chickens were, were to me a huge, uh, you know, component of this because their, their poop, their manure is great for fertilizing the soil, fertilizing the berries. So within a year we had just amazing output, you know, from the small input of, you know, making some garden beds. I, I just Googled on YouTube video, how to make you raise garden beds. You know, it wasn't like I went to a contracting school, you know, and you can, you can buy shipping, pa- like shipping pallets can come for free. So if someone's tight on cash, you can go to any construction lumber yard and get shipping pallets and make a bed out of that. And the, if you want to grow vegetables, the nice part about uh, the bed is you have the garden bed that is, is you have more control over the soil and the inputs and less predators that can get in there. Um, so do it as cheap as you can try to find used lumber. If you, if you can look on, on Facebook marketplace or Craigslist, sometimes people are giving away stuff cause you know, maybe it's, it's construction grade, but maybe it's twisted or this or that, uh, cedar. We, we use juniper in our beds, but you know, the chickens, I think were really helped. And so that fall we got chickens. We've, we've been doing chickens now for five years and they're just so much fun because, um, they're, they're part of the family. You know, they have all totally different types of personalities and, and they're reminders about how you should live your life because they're, they're prey, man. I mean, you know, they have raccoons, they have mountain lions, they got all kind of animals out in the wild that want to eat them. And so when the sun starts to go down, they're not surfing Instagram. They're not hanging out watching YouTube. They're like hiding up high in the coop or in a tree. And, you know, sometimes I guess if you didn't care about circadian rhythms, you just might be like, oh, chickens are going to bed. But to me, I was like, wow, that that's interesting because we feel so safe now because we don't have bears, mountain lions, and uh, animals that our ancestors would, would normally have been exposed to. And so we do this when we go camping, right? When you go camping, you make a fire, you make dinner, you go to bed. Like when the sun goes down, you're, you're not out hanging out, you know, hey, let's go you know, get ice cream or something like that. Because, you know, when you hear coyotes or you hear wolves in the woods, it raises your eyebrows. You're like, you, you know, you don't want to, you know, they're out there preying on food. So anyway, um, that to me, it's a really cool reminder um, and constantly of like the importance of circadian biology. And, and, and if it's interesting, you know, as the seasons change, as the days are getting shorter, they're going to bed earlier. And to me, that's like, you know, it's a good reminder for us. Like, yeah, the sun's going down shorter. They stop eating earlier. So anyway, um, I'm selling you on the idea that the chickens are, if nothing else, besides the fact that you get amazing eggs and meat when you process them, good fertilizer, they're constant reminders of, of the importance of circadian biology and, and living in season. But it's just, part, I know everyone's in different stages of their, of their life when it comes to finances and, and this or that, but I think it's a great goal. And if nothing else, you know, you can get involved. And I know, Ali, you did this by, you know, finding a local farm. There's tons of local farms now. I think a lot of pe- lot more people appreciate. And at this pandemic, if the only thing we learned from this is like a centralized food system, JBS and Tyson and these guys, you know, when they had a, a viral outbreak, like there was meat shortages, there was food shortages. And so, you know, we need to become more 
closer to our food and, and uh, buy locally because, you know, these massive processing plants and so forth, um, you, you don't see that with your local uh, butcher and farmer and things like that. They, they were still working. They were doing what they needed to do. But the risk of a pandemic is like, well, they have like, what, maybe three or four employees and a lot of them are within the family. So they're still working. And um, unfortunately, what we're seeing is like commercial growers are, are buying up some of these smaller mom and pop um, you know, farms and, 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 and all that, which is not good. So yeah, this is part of the health equation. You know, just, just because Costco has massive discounts on quote unquote grass fed, whatever, um, doesn't obviate the need to, to support your local farm and, and local agriculture. So I'm a huge fan of that. It, it just brings everything full circle. When it's so interesting, you know, kind of connecting the dots of our conversation today with the fear mongering brain and that sympathetic fight or flight mode, I think that I paid the most attention during this season to the birds because in the beginning during kind of like mid-March when Stella's school closed and there was that just palpable anxiety, you know, if you had to go to the grocery store, if you had, even if you weren't wearing it yourself, you could feel it in your environment. And I feel like seeing the animals and seeing the rest of the world in this rhythmic, cyclical, you know, still kind of parasympathetic movement, that's a great place to ground and, and keep the, the human body back in that rhythm as well, you know, observing nature and its, its patterns and watching that the animals didn't respond differently. You know, they didn't read the headlines. <laughs> they didn't right. know there's something going on. <laughs> They didn't stockpile toilet paper. That's for sure. You know, no. um, no. And you know what? It, it was comforting. So, so I, I did think that perhaps I wasn't worried about toilet paper and all this sort of stuff, but I thought, you know what? Like if they're closing down meat processing facilities and they have to slaughter all the animals cause they have nowhere to store them and all this, like, I was like, well, if there is a shortage, like of food, you know, I'm good. Like it was really comforting. You know, I have two pigs in the freezer, um, whatever, 40 some odd chickens we have. It's like, I mean, if anything, I'd be concerned about someone, you know, coming over and trying to steal our food, you know, and stuff like that. But yeah, you're right. It, it's, it does give you that grounded connection, you know, while everyone is focused, focused on social distancing here, you have these animals like the roosters, you know, over the hen, you know, they're all connected. You're like, ah, it's a, it's an, it's a refresher that, um, that you're right. These, these, these animals aren't, um, it was a nice reset. Exactly. Like you stated. Between you and Joel Salton, who we interviewed last week. Um, I think we're, we're really sold on the chickens thing. We've been talking about it. (laughs) (laughs) Allie and I for at least the past year. Well, Stella's named them Beatrix, Trixie, and Joyce. So we now have to just find them. (laughs) You know, it's a great time to do it. And what I would suggest if, if you're new to this and one thing that I didn't do initially was um, the tractor chicken coop. And so it's, it's not an automated tractor. It, people can just Google like a, a, a mobile chicken coop. And so basically you can take um, two by fours or two by sixes from any lumber store. They don't have to be perfect. And you can just put like some fencing over it and you have your chickens in there and, and then you move them around your yard. Um, so if you have a smaller piece of property and stuff like that. Uh, and so we do that in our front yard. So we have two different chicken coops. We have like about 20 birds in the front and I move them around all the time. So they're constantly getting new bugs. And then 
around this time, maybe about two, I'll just let them go free range in the front yard because they've, they, they're, they're, yeah, and it's amazing. Once you let them go out, like they just flap their wings or going crazy. It's like to think about how restricted a cage chicken would be like, it would really mess with their head. I would imagine. Cause they're actually surprisingly Like a smart. person during lockdown perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Right. Uh, it's, it's tough to think about. And yeah. So I don't know. I don't want to get too nerdy on or esoteric on this, but it's like if you're eating the meat of an animal that had a horrific life that was probably if they could feel depression, depression, anxiety, like how good is that for you? I mean, I'm, I'm sure it'd be hard to scientifically ask that question, but just logic would assume that probably is not all that good. So everyone going to Costco buying the 99 cent boneless skinless chicken, you know, package. I just, I worry about that, you know, and what, it, what it's really doing to people. But anyway, the, what I was trying to say is for, for really an affordable price, you could make your own or have a handyman build you a mobile chicken tractor. And there's tons of uh, free YouTube videos on that. I wish I would have done that earlier because I, I spent like 500 bucks on this nice chicken coop and they outgrew it and there's crap in a week, there's crap all over it, you know? So that's what I would do is like spend 80 bucks and start small and go from there. Love it. I'll get my husband on that after, nice. after we have our baby. Um, <laughs> um, while we're kind of on uh, the topic of, of food, let's just close here, Mike, with um, your 24-hour recall. I want to hear how you really eat. Um, so yesterday was Sunday. Yes. Um, what did you eat from the time that you woke up to the time that you went to bed and, and give us a little clue into like the fasting window and what you did yesterday too. Sure. Yeah. Um, okay. So I'll, I'll try and make it quick. Um, so we woke up super early yesterday, about four in the morning and then went, drove a few hours to this, this hike. And I like to do hikes fasted. Um, you know, it, you know, hiking or prolonged endurance exercise really lends itself to, to fasting. So I didn't have any food. We had some coffee and, um, what I brought with me was a keto brick, which is a company by a mutual friend of ours, uh, Robert Sykes. And so I, I brought that. And then when we got to the top, it was about four and a half miles. We climbed, I don't know, 2000 feet. It wasn't too crazy. Um, my daughter, I brought, bought her two Epic bars, um, you know, venison. She likes that one. So about halfway up, she's like, dad, I'm hungry. So it's like, all right, here's, here's one. Um, and you know, at the top she had another. And so my wife and I just made, I got this cool little light, uh, French press. So we made a coffee, cut a quarter each of the keto brick, put it in there. So that was pretty much it. And then by the end, we were super hungry. So then we, we got down around noon and went to this co-op in Bellingham, uh, one of my favorite co-ops. And I just got a pound of, I was hoping they would have more stuff, uh, but, but these co-ops for what natural food stores are becoming more and more vegan, it seems like. So anyway, I got a pound of, it was just roast beef and I got some olives and so, um, and a kombucha. So that was it like for lunch. and. Um, Let's see, what else did they get? Oh, Deanna got some beets. So they had like some marinated beets. So I had some of that. But yeah, my to give people a more realistic representation, I mean, unless I'm doing a lot of weightlifting, like heavy maxing out type stuff, like I generally am more low carb and have, you know, eggs and meat. And I love lamb. Lamb's very fatty. So I like that. And olives. Those are like kind of my staples. And then I'll, I'll throw in carbohydrates based upon the season and based upon what I'm doing athletically. So if I want to, you know, when I do legs, when I squat or something like that, which I do two days a week, I'll, I'll 
strive to have more um, like tubers, uh, you know, so whether it's colored beets or turnips or parsnips, um, I like celery root, celery yak, and then I also like squashes and, uh, you know, purple potatoes. So those are kind of the carbs that I'll cycle through and based upon what I can find at the store or this um, 21 acres I go to here in Woodenville uh, or what we're growing, you know, I have a bunch of potatoes right now. So they're these nice little purple potatoes. They taste amazing. Um, and I'll, I'll saute those up with ghee. So yeah, basically it's like two meals a day. Um, do you do that post-workout recovery? Do you do any pre, was it still fasted for the heavy muscle workout? That's a good question. I, I find personally, and I know this is different with women. I know women feel better fasted, um, but I like to have some food when I do weight training. Like I said, fasted hike, because it's like, it's a family hike. We're not breaking records or anything like that. Um, we're going at a good clip, but like if I'm trying to do a you know, squat or press or whatever, um, I like to have food beforehand. So um, now if, I, if, for example, it's an early morning workout and then we're going to travel. I'll just do it fast and I'm not going to get up to eat and whatever. But if, if I normally, what I'll do is I'll, I'll train during this time. Today's the rest day, but I will normally go uh, to my home gym or now thankfully the gym reopened that I can just ride my bike to and I'll have something to eat around 1030. And um, so, yeah, that would include um, generally um, some carbs and protein and just a little bit of fat. And then kind of the rest of the day will be um, more low carb keto. So yeah. Um, but like to answer your question specifically, so if someone is metabolically flexible and is not trying to lose body fat, then in the post-workout window, I think there is some advantages to having carbohydrates, even if you're mostly keto, um, because it, it can help you. I, I find it, you're just, your recovery is just better from exercise. I know that you know, people will say, well, you know, if you're keto, you can replenish glycogen at the same rate and all that. But I've just found, honestly, I just feel better. Um, if, if, if training volume warrants it, right. Then having post-workout a little bit of protein, a little bit of carbs, it just, you, you just feel better the next day. Um, at least that's, that's me. Everyone's a little bit different. Um, so yeah, I, again, to give people more specifics, the carbohydrates are generally consumed around exercise. That's how I kind of frame it for people and, and do it for myself is like, that's your buffer. You have a lot more buffer room when you're expending yourself physically to afford, you know, to utilize these carbs. And then later in the evening and all that, it's just mostly protein and fat. Love it. That sounds pretty comparable, I think, to, to the train that we're on. So that yeah. sounds nice. awesome. Good. Um, all right, Mike, let's share with our listeners where they can find more about you, anything you have coming up in the cuff this fall, and um, yeah, where, where they can find out more about you. Amazing. Well, first of all, thanks to everyone for listening all the way through. Uh, hopefully you got some insights out of this. You know, I'm pretty active on Instagram and YouTube. My handle on, on Instagram is metabolic underscore Mike. YouTube is uh, high intensity health. And I'm, I'm revising a book that I wrote in 2013, uh, Belly Fat Effect. And um, the theme, the main theme of that book was, was about immunometabolism. And, um, you know, it's just a very exciting topic. And I, I think something that, that is very timely. And, and now people, I think it, it, people will care about this idea that, you know, if you have metabolic dysregulation, you're going to have immune, you're going to be compromised from an immunologic standpoint. And so to me, it's, it's really fascinating, this area of research, again, of immunometabolism. So uh, revising that, it's going to be available in November. And um, yeah, just trying to share funny memes and, and you know, uh, not get myself into too much trouble on Instagram. And that's what I'm up to. Awesome. And then the website's highintensityhealth.com as well, correct? 
Correct. Yeah. Thank you, Ali. We'll share that as well. And then we'll also share some of these research studies that you've referenced. Um, Can't wait to share this with our audience. I'm sure it'll be a fantastic resource. And uh, we're so grateful for your time and energy. Hey, my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Naturally Nourished podcast. Visit our blog at AllieMillerRD.com for recipes, wellness tips, and food as medicine meal plans. Connect with Allie and Becky at AllieMillerRD on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Until next time, stay nourished and be well.